0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
1: A San Diego congresswoman moves to censure Marjorie Taylor Greene.
2: And we saw what happened on January 6th when we allowed this kind of hateful rhetoric to go unanswered.
1: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego County pledges to become carbon neutral.
3: You name it, everything that's uh, consuming carbon, we're looking at. You know what are what are the what are some of the alternatives that that we should be exploring.
1: The San Diego Port Commission struggles to keep afloat during the pandemic, and the San Diego History Center celebrates Black History Month.
4: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right.
1: That's ahead on Midday Edition. Congress has monumental issues before it, from COVID relief to immigration reform to combating climate change. But one of the overriding issues at present is the climate within Congress itself. Members are reportedly angry and wary of each other, suspicious of how much some members of Congress may have been complicit with the insurrection of January 6th. And some in Congress have refused to comply with new metal detectors installed to search for concealed weapons. Much of the concern is now focused on the newly elected representative from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her past support for QAnon and other conspiracy theories and her support on social media for physical violence against fellow politicians has now led to efforts to expel Greene from Congress or to censure her. The censure resolution was co-sponsored by San Diego Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, who joins us now. And welcome Congresswoman Jacobs.
2: Thank you. Great to be here with you. Can
1: you tell us about the censure resolution you've submitted against Congresswoman Green? What would it do?
2: So I uh, submitted this resolution with my colleague, Congresswoman Nikima Williams of Georgia, uh, and it would formally censure uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and call for her to resign. Censure is a, a ability that Congress has to Uh, make sure that we are holding our own members accountable. It's one of the highest levels of that that we can do, and it's only been done against a number of members uh, throughout the history of Congress.
1: Does it have any practical result if it were to be voted, uh, if it were to be approved?
2: So the censure resolution is something that goes into the history books uh, forevermore. She is a censured member of Congress. We would need additional resolutions to strip her of committee assignments or to expel her.
1: And why did you take that step as one of your very first acts in Congress?
2: As someone who's worked in conflict settings and political violence around the world, I know how important it is to hold accountable people who are calling for violence. Uh, We saw what can happen when we don't on January 6th, and we've seen throughout history. And so I felt like it was incredibly important that we set down this marker of censure, uh, that this is beyond the realm of normal political disagreements, and this is behavior that is frankly unacceptable.
1: And what are the acts you feel warrant a vote of censure against Marjorie Taylor Greene?
2: To me, the most egregious are her calling for the execution of President Obama, of Speaker Pelosi, of Secretary Clinton, uh, when she liked, retweeted, and even herself said things that promoted violence against those uh, elected leaders. To me, that is the most egregious uh, of her activities, although there are a number of things I think uh, that she has done that are beyond the pale.
1: Now, Congresswoman Cori Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, has just moved her office away from Green. She says it's for her team's safety. Do you think Congresswoman Green poses a physical threat to her colleagues?
2: You know, it's it's really hard to say. She clearly does in the sense that she refuses to wear a mask. I have been in many uh, spaces with her where she refuses to put her mask on, even when we have elderly or immunocompromised fellow colleagues who are in the room with us. And it's clear that she believes in violence as a way to resolve her political disagreements. I think we here in California know what can happen when you have members of a group like this, like we saw in San Francisco with Harvey Milk, who was murdered by a fellow supervisor. And so I think while I don't feel like there's an imminent threat to my life right now from her, it's clear that she does not care about the lives of her colleagues shown by her in her unwillingness to wear a mask, her unwillingness to go through the metal detectors. And I think it's a perfectly acceptable thing for Congresswoman Bush to decide that it's that she wants to move her office.
1: What is the atmosphere like in Congress now? Is it tense?
2: There's certainly some tension uh, and obviously there's still a lot of security up and around the facility. Although I will say I was at the inauguration and I was sitting with a bipartisan group of members and it was clear that a lot of us are really ready to turn the page and to get back to the work of the American people. I believe we can't do that until we hold people accountable who incited, encouraged or committed acts of violence. Um, But there is actually a lot more, excuse me, a lot more camaraderie and friendship among the members than you would think. And honestly, one of the things that was most exciting after the attack happened, we really saw our other colleagues check in on each other, look after each other, really pull together in a way that was really heartening to me.
1: Well, in that spirit of bipartisanship, do you expect to get any Republican support for the effort to censure Green?
2: I know there are a number of Republican members who don't agree with her and think that she gives a bad name to their party. And I'm hopeful that when it comes time to it, they will step up and make those positions known and uh, do the right thing.
1: House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is expected to have a meeting with Marjorie Taylor Greene this week to see if she should be reprimanded in any way. Do you expect anything to come out of that meeting?
2: I'm hopeful that he will take her off of her committees and will reprimand her. Um, But I got to say, I don't have a lot of faith in uh, Congressman McCarthy at the moment.
1: When will your censure resolution be up for a vote?
2: Uh, We're not sure. We're still uh, learning the calendar for the upcoming votes. It's uh, introduced today and will likely come up for a vote sometime soon.
1: And would it take a simple majority to pass?
2: That's right. Censure only requires a simple majority to pass. Uh, To expel Congresswoman Green would require a two thirds majority. And so we feel like there's a really good chance that we can get this censure passed and have that formally on the record. Okay, then I've been speaking with San
1: Diego Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs and Congresswoman Jacobs, thanks a lot.
5: Of course.
0: Cutting carbon emissions is one of the tools local communities are hoping to use to make inroads in slowing the effects of climate change. The County Board of Supervisors voted last week to make San Diego the largest U.S. county to commit to zero carbon emissions by 2035. Supervisors Tara Lawson-Reamer and Nora Vargas spearheaded the effort. And Supervisor Lawson-Reamer joins me now with more. Welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. So this effort is in response to a petition. Tell me about that.
3: Frankly, climate is the existential crisis that we face in our lifetimes. If we cannot mobilize to take action now on climate, then there will be no future for our children and everything we think about day in day out in terms of, you know, making sure that our kids have school opportunities and, um, you know, we're, we're fighting for their futures. All is completely uh, irrelevant if there's not a healthy planet for them to grow up on, uh, if their planet is consumed by floods and wildfires and, um, you know, devastation. So, this is a huge issue. It's a huge issue for voters. It's a huge issue for people across San Diego. 1500 people came together to demand that the county take urgent action. Uh, And I'm just really proud to be part of that movement and part of that movement for for climate action and for climate justice here in San Diego, because the leadership is coming from from everywhere. I mean, I know it was myself and Supervisor Vargas who put the the board letter forward. But honestly, we're only going to make progress on this if we all continue to fight day in and day out. We all continue to demand action. And I'm just um, so impressed and so honored to be able to be part of the movement that uh, people have been building for a long time.
0: The county is teaming up with UCSD to create this zero carbon plan. How will that partnership work?
3: So actually, uh, UCSD has um, done a lot of work looking at other countries, our federal government, you know, just going back to basics on science and saying, what would it really mean to think outside the box and think about all the things that we need to do to reduce and eliminate our carbon footprint here in San Diego? I mean, the fact is, is for the last 40 years, uh, there's been, various conversations about climate, but it's always been about what's the least we can do, what's the least we can get away with just to be barely in compliance with, with state law. And this turns the question on its head. This is, what do we need to do? What does the science say? Where And so USCC is gonna be drawing on a team of researchers from across the country that's looked at these questions in other contexts and able to say, you know, this is what the science says. This is what the evidence says that uh, we need to do to reduce and eliminate our carbon footprint here in San Diego County. Uh, I also wanna note that they're uh, gonna be working really closely with another team at USD, uh, a group called Epic who has a lot of local expertise and is gonna be looking at how you translate some of these uh, big, uh, scientific breakthroughs into actionable policy initiatives here in our own community. Um, so it's, it's really a partnership that draws on the best of our local leadership, the best of our, our uh, local expertise uh, through EPIC and through USD, as well as global expertise and a global, uh, global knowledge base that, that looks at the science um, and what's possible and what's necessary from around the world.
0: So tell me, what kinds of things exactly will be included in this plan?
3: I mean, I'll be honest, we don't know yet, right? I mean, and I think that's why we really wanted uh, the researchers at at USD and EPIC and UCSD and 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 GPS, which is where I used to be on faculty, uh, to take a look and take fresh eyes because uh, our whole goal here is to say nothing is off the table. Everything is on the table. We need to look at anything that uh, might be a possible strategy to reduce and eliminate carbon emissions. So honestly, you know, we are letting them just take take it over from here to come back with uh, as many thoughtful and creative suggestions that come from the best evidence-based uh, research from around the world so we can figure out how to make that happen here in San Diego County.
0: The plan will focus on decreasing uh, emissions from certain sectors. What are some of those sectors? Are we talking transportation, energy?
3: Everything, absolutely. Transportation, vehicles mile traveled. Um, energy. Looking at how do we make our buildings much more energy efficient. The power sector, uh, water. You know, you name it. Everything that's uh, consuming carbon. We're looking at. You know, what are what are the what are some of the alternatives that that we should be exploring. I also want to note one of the core commitments of this work is that it, it has to also be about good jobs and growing the San Diego economy, and that's a that's baked into what we're looking at doing. That's part of the DNA of this proposal. Is that we're we're looking at how good jobs and growing our economy and and creating a new green economy goes hand in hand with reducing our carbon footprint. So we're absolutely uh, looking from the outset about how you build um, the future economy and the green economy in the process. Of decarbonizing, uh, because the the research is pretty clear that there's really extraordinary um, growth opportunities in this process of moving to a green economy. That we can have good green jobs. We can have got jobs that pay a middle class income that allow folks to to support their families, uh, and we can do that while building a green future for our children.
0: And tell me, the board voted to rehaul its climate action plan a few weeks ago. How does this zero carbon plan fit into the county's climate action plan, or, or is it separate?
3: Think about these as two ships um, moving the same direction, um, but they're not the same ship. So the climate action plan is a legally mandated plan that we have to produce per state law to reduce carbon emissions, mostly in our unincorporated areas. And There's a lot of sort of basic minimums that this plan needs to meet that it hasn't met so far, which is why we've been sued three times and it keeps getting thrown out because the old board wouldn't take any action on climate. So the Climate Action Plan is looking at uh, a number of pretty diverse range of policy interventions that can happen in the near to medium term to mitigate our carbon emissions in our unincorporated areas. The Regional Sustainability Plan has a much bigger lens. Instead of looking sort of backwards about how do we uh, reduce carbon that we have already been mandated to produce, the Regional Sustainability Plan is how do we restructure our economy from the bottom up so that it's not a carbon-based economy, and opens up the box of what all the different sectors and all the different measures are that we should be looking at, not just the narrow ones that are already policy tools in the county's toolkit in the unincorporated areas. Uh, So it asks a much wider set of questions. We certainly need both. We need a much more ambitious climate action plan and we're gonna be working and pushing to make that happen at the same time that we ask the bigger and deeper questions about how do we build a regional sustainability plan that doesn't only look at the town county's toolkit, but looks at policies that can be pursued in tandem with other jurisdictions, with other cities, um, with water boards, with uh, the private sector. So the kinds of policies that we're going to need regional partnerships to make happen, those are the kinds of things that are going to be on the table with the regional sustainability plan that are not on the table with the climate action plan.
0: So what does all this mean to the average resident? What changes will they see as a result?
3: I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Um, I mean, I think the first thing that we will see Is just like a much clearer focus on how do we improve the ability for people to, you know, live close to where they work, uh, spend less time in their cars, because cars are obviously a huge uh, contributor to carbon emissions. And if they can't, you know, live that close to work, then how do we ensure that they're not stuck idling in traffic because Idling and traffic is uh, a big contributor to, to um, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there's going to be a lot more, you know, opportunities for electric vehicles and electrical vehicle charging. Uh, we're definitely looking at energy efficiency and energy efficiency retrofits, and how can we support businesses and homeowners to move towards greater efficiency? So that'll be a lot of cost savings for homeowners and for businesses, you know, down the line once um, those energy efficiency retrofits uh, are able to move forward. You know, looking at more support for solar, more support for wind power. So there's going to be a lot of those changes. I do also think it's important to note that this is the beginning of a journey. You know, that's why it was so incredibly heartening to see uh, 1,500 people sign that petition because this is not going to happen overnight, right? What we've done now is kind of put the framework together to begin figuring out what these different measures are going to look like and what these different policies are going to be. But it's going to be at least a year until we get that analysis, you know, completed from um, our friends at, at EPIC and USD and UCSD. And they come back with a set of recommendations and analysis, and so it won't really be until after that that we'll begin be able to begin start to implementing some of these policies. And uh, the other thing I just want to flag for folks: uh, not only is it going to take us a, a while to, to see those changes; it's definitely a long process. It's also going to take everyone's input. So we're structuring a process that's really community driven. There's going to be a lot of need for communities to raise their voices, make sure the voices are heard in this process. Uh, UCSD is going to be conducting a lot of stakeholder workshops. The county is going to be conducting a lot of stakeholder workshops. We're going to have an advisory committee on the regional sustainability plan and a lot of space for for communities to have input. So uh, this is going to be um, a process over the next year to figure out what this is going to look like. uh, And it's going to be a process that's going to ask really ask communities to step forward and participate.
0: I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Tara Lawson Reamer. Supervisor Lawson Reamer, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here.
6: KPBS
0: On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash OLLI. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh, and you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. COVID-19 has spread like wildfire inside a jail north of Sacramento that also holds immigrant detainees. Now, about half of all the people locked up there have tested positive for the virus. In this story from the California Report magazine, KQED immigration reporter Farida Jabvala Romero spoke with one of them, a 20-year-old asylum seeker who's been
7: fighting to improve conditions inside. Juan Jose Eraso Herrera says life was unbearable for him in his home country of El Salvador. No podía vivir en mi país ya. He called me from inside the Yuba County Jail to tell me how he wound up there. He says growing up, he was abused and abandoned by his parents. As a teenager, gangs beat him and threatened to kill him. If he stayed, he says, it would have been like a death sentence. We were but he had a brother in the US, so he fled El Salvador and made the journey north through Guatemala and Mexico, basically on his own, with no money. He was 16 when he crossed the southern border and ended up at a government shelter for unaccompanied migrant kids that finally released him to his brother in New York. But he was involved in a robbery, stealing a classmate's cell phone, and Juan Jose served time in a juvenile facility. Every time I feel He says he often regrets that mistake, but that he's learned from it and paid for it. After he finished his juvenile sentence, he was sent to a California facility for minors. When he turned 18, I sent him to the Yuba County Jail.
8: Simplemente quisiera poder tener una oportunidad de de demostrarles que soy diferente, que he cambiado, que he recapacitado.
7: He says he wants an opportunity to show he's changed. When COVID first hit, Juan Jose was worried he and others at the jail were vulnerable. He says it was impossible to socially distance and they lacked good medical care. So he put himself out there and became an advocate. He went on three hunger strikes to try to get officials with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Yuba Jail to do more to protect them. He also became part of a lawsuit to force ICE to release detainees to allow for more social distancing inside.
5: One of the things that most impresses me about him is that despite the fact that he has just never been
7: able to catch a
5: break in life, and yet he still has this really generous heart where He wants
7: to help other people. Kelly Wells is Juan Jose's attorney. She's with the San Francisco Public Defenders Immigration Unit. She says the lawsuit led to a federal judge in San Francisco ordering the release of more than 50 detainees from Yuba. That didn't prevent a COVID outbreak from hitting the facility last month. The judge then ordered weekly testing for detainees and for ICE to ensure that staff cleans and disinfects cells before people are moved there. But still, more than 120 county inmates and nine ICE detainees, including Juan Jose, have tested positive.
8: Yo no podía respirar, y
7: Juan Jose says he had difficulty breathing and was coughing blood. Guards isolated him in a small concrete cell with no windows. When he first got there, he felt like crying.
8: Y el toilet, el o sea, super asquerosos. He says the
7: toilet was disgusting. The walls were moldy. The bed was covered in dust, trash, and other people's hair.
5: And we've heard consistently from every single detainee who has been moved since the order that they have arrived to filthy cells um, that clearly hadn't even been cleaned, much less disinfected.
7: Juan Jose says he was kept in that cell alone, 22 hours per day, for 12 days. ICE's own policy says medical quarantine must be different from punitive segregation. But Juan Jose says he felt he was being punished. He was so depressed, he says, he thought about killing himself. An ICE spokesman says he can't comment because of pending litigation involving the Yuba facility. Juan Jose's lawyer, Kelly Wells, says immigrants have given up and agreed to be deported after just one month at the Yuba Jail. But Juan Jose has endured three years there as he pursues asylum because he's afraid of returning to El Salvador.
5: For me, what's really crushing about his case is I started representing him when he was just 18 years old, and I've watched him grow up in Yuba County Jail, Um, and now he's lost so many um, experiences that you should have as a teenager because he's been stuck in this dismal jail.
7: But recently, Juan Jose got some good news. A state court granted him special immigrant juvenile status for young immigrants who've been abused by a parent and for whom it's not in their best interest to return to their home country. The status is not enough to get him out of detention, but it opens the door for him to apply for a green card.
8: Eso es lo que me da fuerza, me da
7: that chance gives him hope, he says. Juan José dreams that when he eventually leaves the detention center, he'll go to school, work, and one day start a program that supports young undocumented migrants like him. Anfarida Yavala Romero.
1: The Port of San Diego just endured a brutal financial year thanks to the coronavirus pandemic. The agency is charged with managing the land around San Diego Bay. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson recently sat outside next to San Diego Bay and spoke with the chair of the Port Commission, Michael Zouquet. He said 2020 was an unprecedented challenge.
6: On the one hand, you know, cruise ships, hotels, Restaurants, convention-based businesses, not a not a good year for those uh, for those tenants and for those entities. And to the extent they pay rent to the port, that's been a particularly uh, challenging part of our book of business. Luckily, we're also quite diversified. Provide a lot of cargo, marine terminals. Dole is still shipping billions of bananas uh, every year. We're still uh, handling a lot of cargo shipbuilders and ship repairers still thriving. You know, hundreds of thousands of cars from Asia are still coming. And so, you know, we're sort of just navigating all of that. Um, luckily, as an organization, we had substantial financial reserves, which we have used this year. I think this is the definition of a rainy day as it, as it relates to public entities and so we've used that. The big question is, you know, is this summer really the beginning again of some form of normalcy? Um, that's the optimistic view and maybe the base case, but who the heck knows? Has
9: this financial crunch inhibited your ability to do what you feel is necessary for the port to do? For the people of San Diego.
6: So we have, a, we have a need to spend money to maintain these these lands and we've been able to do that. We have definitely cut a lot of expenses. We've deferred certain capital projects. We've uh, instituted a hiring freeze. Our employees have, have given back uh, pay increases. So there has been sacrifice, but in terms of delivering those services, uh, we've continued, in fact, you know, these these parks and this open space and access to the waterfront has been particularly important during the pandemic because you know that's that's some safe outdoor socially distance activities uh, that we can do
9: When you think of the year ahead what do you think of
6: you know continued navigation uh of the pandemic and continuing on with those services the port you know uh is responsible for tens of thousands of jobs you know cargo and goods that are important for uh, for, for San Diego and for our region and, and for the country, frankly, so continuing on all of that is, is number one. Um, number two, we've got some transitions at the port that are happening. We have some new commissioners, we have a new president and CEO. Third, we have a number of projects in the pipeline, uh, some high-profile projects related to reimagining Seaport Village, the Chula Vista Bayfront product, project, and a number of others that are important uh, and then, for me personally, the initiative this year that, that that I've really identified and I'm going to be working on is is clean air. Uh, the port obviously engages in a lot of activities that uh, that affect our environment, and particularly as it relates to diesel truck trips through some portside communities.
9: If you think about the port today, and then think about where the port will be in five years, what transition can we expect
6: well I think for starters we could be on our way to a fully electrified port um, and not just in terms of diesel truck traffic but you know that's something that is a possibility within the next decade and to get there in ten years we have to start now with charging infrastructure with you know shore power and microgrids and dealing with cruise ships and, and everything else and so I think you'll see a an energy and a a greenhouse gas emission and diesel emission transformation of the port over the next five to ten years.
1: Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. And Eric,
9: welcome. Thank you, Maureen.
1: You said the port had endured a brutal financial year, and Port Commissioner Michael Zuchat says they've had to dig into their reserves. Do we know how much the port has lost?
9: Well, I took a look at some of their uh, end of the fiscal year 2020 numbers and uh, kind of what I came up with was their total revenues were about $184 million and some change. Their total expenses were about $206 million and change. So you can see the difference between those two numbers paints what the picture is. They, they lost money last year and that's not surprising because covid had such a severe impact on a number of sectors that they rely on for revenue. Uh, Think about uh, convention. There was no convention center business in San Diego after February of last year. Uh, The hotels that rely on some of that convention business that are in the Tidelands area right along the bay, uh, they did not do as well because those conventions were not in town. And there were other areas too that the Port of San Diego struggled with uh, there were no cruise ships coming through uh, after the first couple of months of the year so all of that revenue uh, was hit and some of their cargo revenue also took a financial hit as the year wore on
1: How does the Port of San Diego's financial health affect the rest of San Diego's
0: economy
9: Well in some ways it affects the economy around the bay that's really what the port was designed to do when it was uh, first conceived as a public agency a number of decades ago, it was designed to manage the tidelands around San Diego Bay. There were five communities that have land that that comes up to the bay. And rather than have five uh, different uh, viewpoints or different plans, uh, the leaders in the area thought it w- would make sense to develop the unified port of San Diego, which would manage the tidelands. Um, and it needs money to operate. There are things around the Tidelands uh, that the Port of San Diego is responsible for maintaining, for protecting, uh, and for uh, enhancing as well uh, over the years. Uh, so the money that they pull in from all the different revenue activities that they have along the Bay is money that they draw on to operate the different things that they do around the Bay and also plan for the future.
1: What are some of those things that they do?
9: Uh, some big ones that are coming up. Uh, it's going to be the uh, the redesign and the rethinking of Seaport Village. Uh, you may have gone uh, down to Seaport Village in the last couple of years, and the traffic is not quite where the port wants it to be, the foot traffic, the, the tourism traffic. So they're going to rethink that and redesign that. Another big project that's been on the drawing boards for a number of years, and it's going to have a big impact on the bay is the Chula Vista redevelopment project. And then there are some other projects as well uh, in National City to try to enhance some of the public assets that are there along the bay and to make that area a little bit more attractive uh, to not only the people who live in National City, but to people uh, from other parts of the county as well.
1: Did you get the sense that the port has a plan about how to weather another summer where traveling conventions are curtailed if we don't return to normal?
9: Much of what uh, I got the sense of was that this was uh, a situation where they know they're going to feel some of those financial constraints in the first part of the year. Uh, But they're hopeful that by the summer, by the end of the summer or the middle of the summer, that things will start to get back to normal. And if the news about the vaccine, continues to track it as, as it has, um, then I, I think that that's a, a reasonable expectation. When things start to get back to normal for the port completely, uh, it might not be in this, this calendar year Uh, But certainly they hope to be moving in that direction. They don't want to continue to lose a large chunk of money uh, for another entire year.
1: And looking further into the future for a moment, tell us more about the commitment the port has to improving the environment.
9: Yeah, this is a big thing for the port. They're in the midst of redesigning their master plan. And one of the elements in that master plan uh, is a statement that is something that's pretty rare for uh, ports around California anyway. Uh, and it's that they want to take a position on environmental justice. They want to make environmental justice a part of what they do when they make business-related decisions. They want to make sure that uh, they're not impacting negatively the communities that live uh, near the Bayfront, uh, for example, by by, you know, driving a lot of trucks through Barrio, Logan, or National City, and increasing the diesel pollution. They want to make sure that they account for that and find a way to work with those communities.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you very much.
9: My pleasure.
0: Several new federal laws will take effect this year, but are intended to reduce the number of veteran suicides. Former service members continue to die by suicide at a higher rate than non-veterans, but some suicide prevention advocates say more help is needed at the local level. From Washington, Caitlin Kim reports for the American Homefront
10: Project. Kristen Christie is often called a subject matter expert on the issue of suicide for active-duty military, veterans, and their families. It's not by choice. Twelve years ago, her husband Don, a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, died by suicide. I had no idea. Suicide was not on my radar whatsoever. Her husband deployed to Iraq in 2004. When he talked to his family about his experience, he focused on the positives, meeting dignitaries or USO tours. It wasn't until after his death in 2008 that Christie learned that a major part of his work was repatriating remains of service members.
11: He just couldn't verbalize that he was in charge of the human remains. And in April of 2004, his first month there, they had had 94
10: casualties. His death by suicide changed not just her life, but those of their two young sons who both struggled with the loss of their father. Her younger son left her a tearful message on his 20th birthday about the hole left in his life. It was used as part of an Air Force suicide prevention campaign. <laughs> This all led Christie to become a suicide prevention advocate, not just learning about the signs which can vary from person to person, but how the ripple effect hits families and friends. She spent much of the last several years working with active duty military and veterans groups near her home in Colorado Springs. I say
1: we're on an emotional battlefield.
12: And how can we arm our veterans,
0: our active duty and their family members with the armor and the weapons? that they need to combat
11: whatever they're going through.
10: It's a multi-front battle. When the Air Force saw a rise in suicide within its ranks, it held a one-day stand-down to focus on prevention. At the end of last year, Congress passed a legislative package to bolster and expand veterans' mental health care and provide funds for community organizations helping vets. Republican Senator Jerry Moran of Kansas says these measures will help.
4: While this legislation puts in place the critical care Service and support that will save veterans' lives. It's my hope that the bill will also serve as a signal to our veterans, service members, and their families that they are never, never alone.
10: Still, Dwayne France argues much more needs to be done to reduce veteran suicide. He's director of veteran services for the Family Care Center in Colorado Springs and an Army veteran himself.
9: We need to be able to establish infrastructure, both in personnel and in funds, at the community level so we can address it where it's happening rather than trying to establish this blanket um, overarching solution, so to speak.
10: Picture an inverted pyramid. He says there are lots of resources and people on the federal and even state level who work on suicide prevention, less so at the local level, and that's where France argues the front lines of prevention are. His Colorado County loses a veteran once a week
9: to suicide. Uh, Not all veterans who die by suicide are experiencing a mental health crisis. It could be financial, it could be relational, it could be employment-related. And so we really need to be able to have a community response.
10: While France appreciates the work Congress is doing, he notes legislative solutions always lag behind. It will be a year or more before these bills are fully implemented, and several years before we see if they made any difference. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin
0: Kim. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. If you are having thoughts of suicide, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the San Diego Access and Crisis Line at 1-888-724-7240. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. San Diego History Center kicks off an online exhibit and social media campaign today to celebrate Black History Month. KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando previews celebrate San Diego black history and heritage with the History Center's marketing manager, Shelby Gordon.
11: Shelby, tell me how the center gathered some of these images that are part of this San Diego black history collection.
12: Well, we've had them in our collection, in our permanent collection. We're a 92-year-old organization. So over the course of those 92 years, heirs have left us items and photographs. And then Mr. Baynard, who was a a black portrait and events photographer here for decades, um, his son literally brought us negatives and prints from his collection,
11: which is extensive. And in going through some of this material for the exhibition, did you come across anything that is your favorite? Well, I'm a black San Diegan,
12: so a lot of these are snapshots of my life. Um, I was baptized in a pool like this. I know ladies who lunch in that photograph. I had uncles who were in the military and I was a debutante, so I have the debutante photo as well. So a lot of these reflect my memories of being born and raised here, and also the culture and the society that I grew up in in Black San Diego.
11: Out of these items, is there any that has a particularly interesting history in terms of how you got it or what it represents? Well, I think the Baynard collection certainly is, it's
12: legendary to have that scope of photographs, individual portraits, family portraits, events, occasions, and to have that unsolicited being brought to the center and for it to be encompassed into our permanent collection. That's pretty memorable.
11: And for this year, what is the center planning to do for Black History Month? Well, we had planned to open an
12: exhibition, Nathan Harrison, Born Enslaved and Died a San Diego Legend, last year. But due to the virus, we had to postpone that event. And as we started thinking about how like every other um, arts and culture institution here across the globe, how could we switch this to a virtual display and make it accessible by people even though our physical doors were not open? So that's where the Celebrate San Diego Black History and Heritage Exhibition really evolved. We've certainly had lots of photography, We had journal articles in our Journal of San Diego History. We have oral histories. We continue to get documents and ephemera and mementos donated to us. So in putting it together, however, particularly the timeline, which will be a 24 foot wide timeline in the physical space, But we knew we needed to put that online. And when we did it, we are working with an African-American Advisory Council. And they said, you know what? There are some glaring omissions here. And we said, then what a great idea then to go to the community so that they can insert their memories, their reflections, their milestones, their photographs, their art to be inserted into our virtual timeline. And then that sprung forward into we'll nominate a, a local hero because so many of us have been influenced by a teacher or a leader or a role model or a mentor who helped us. And in some cases they're acknowledged and in some cases they're not. So we wanted to offer that opportunity to the community to nominate heroes, not necessarily the ones, um, the black leaders that we see in the news every day, but heroes who have really helped instill values and goals in San Diegans of all ages, who have then turned around and mentored other generations and who continue to help this community really thrive and strive.
11: This is gonna be available online, but are you also doing uh, something on social media as well to share some of this information? Starting today, February 1st, will be our
12: 28 Days of Black San Diego History social media promotion. Every single day, We will be posting, it's usually an element from our virtual timeline, but I also think that we're going to get some really good submissions from the community. And I do want to be able to insert those in as well. So that will be deployed on all our social media platforms. It's very, I don't want to say novel, but it's very aggressive. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily think, when they think Black History Month, they may not think about San Diego black history. And I was asked the question, Shelby, do you really
11: have 28 days? Yes, I really have 28 days plus. So if people have, that they would like to mm-hmm. contribute, what's the best way to donate them or to provide them to the center? So, you can go to our website, go to the research
12: tab. There's a donated artifact there. You click on that, you complete the form. It comes to the center. Our collections team evaluates it, and then they may c- call you back and ask you some questions and then possibly make arrangements to take possession of it.
11: And tell us where we are right now. What is this room here? <laughs> we are in the research
12: archives. We are in beautiful Balboa Park. We are below the floor, below the exhibition space. And this is sacred ground. (laughs) There are um, statues and busts and newspapers and microfiche and negatives and prints. And Natalie's back there printing because we do get quite a few um, orders from people wanting historic photos, architects and commercial interior designers wanting historic photos to enhance their new spaces. So we're exceptionally busy doing that, even though our physical doors are closed, we continue to facilitate all of those requests. So dynamic space down here, it's one of my favorite places to be in the center. Um, Because as a native born, I'm down here too, right, in some way. So, um, yes, we're we're hopeful that at some point we'll be able to safely um, open our exhibition space to the public. In the meantime, quite a few of our photographs and our research guides and our research
1: tips and tools are on our website.
11: All right. Well, I want to thank you very much. Thank you.
1: That was Beth Accomando speaking with the San Diego History Center's Shelby Gordon. The virtual timeline gathering all these materials can be found on the San Diego History Center website at san sandiegohistory.org.
4: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen.